The topics discussed in this show may be triggering or harmful for some listeners. We tackle topics of suicide, self-harm, violence, child abuse, and death. Our hope is that even if you aren't able to listen to the whole story, that you can join us for the first 15 to 30 minutes where we catch up and gossip about our lives and the world. We will be intentional on marking where triggering information may be, as well as having timestamps in our episode descriptions for those topics. Thank you. We're back. We're back. Bitches. It's too aggressive. So sorry. (laughs) Oh, man. Leave it in. I will. We hope you enjoyed episode one. Yes. We're feeling good. Feeling good. Fresh. Funky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I ate a biscuit. Caroline got more coffee. Sure did. And we back. I have a fun fact about coffee. Hit me. As an early best friend tangent. So some of my friends and I had, I think you know the story. So my friends and I had a coffee competition last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we decided, because we, we drink a lot of iced coffee, I mean, like two of my other best friends. And so we decided, okay, well, let's just see how long we can go without drinking coffee. Now, I got quote unquote bullied into it because I have FOMO um, and want people to be my friend. So I was like, sure. Cause they were like fighting. I'm like, I bet I can drink coffee, not drink coffee longer than you. I was like, well, I don't want to be laughed out. I want to see how I can do. You're a stubborn gal. So once you're on it, I just, I am so competitive. It's why I don't like playing games a lot. Cause I don't like how I feel. <laughs> I don't like being to people. <laughs> um, and so I have that same feeling, but I like it. Honestly, I love that for you and me. Um, so it went on for almost like two months. I don't know. It was a long time. And yeah. Christmas came. We had a Christmas party and we were all suffering because we just wanted some coffee. Like you feel weird and you get headaches. Obviously, the, the caffeine headache. It's just not fun. No. I didn't do anything to help me. And so we were like, okay, how are we going to stop this? Well, we decided, okay, we're going to play rounds of spoons and then whoever wins like best whatever out of whatever that they get to decide what to do like we had gone like we were doing a number generator and like we picked a number and whoever like that's the person who lost it was so it took us like 20 minutes to figure out how we wanted to stop it yeah so we ended up playing spoons and your girl won all won the spoons game so what we decided was after the party we would all go to starbucks and then we'd all order a coffee and those two would drink first together. So they would both lose and then I would win. Love that. And that's what we did. And I have video proof and it's amazing, but I will never stop drinking coffee after that. I don't need to. It's fine. When you can't drink coffee anymore, green tea is the way. Oh, I love green tea. Yeah. I have to switch to green tea in the afternoon because like after like one coffee makes me weird. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. If you don't eat, like if I don't eat enough, then I have a bad time. It's bad time. Yeah. O'clock. Mm-hmm. But green tea is really yummy. What are you drinking right now? I'm drinking hot chocolate. <gasps> yummy. What kind of mix do you use? This is a high brand, like basic. Because we got this like right before Christmas. So like mm-hmm. there was none. So we got like the high one with like no marshmallows, which is lame. That's pretty lame. Is it still good? Do you ever like put coffee in your hot chocolate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Good, good. No, I, and I will drink iced coffee no matter the weather. It, it was snowed. It's it's cold outside. And here I am, second glass. Love that for you. Thank you very much. What else, pal? How's it going? I like your coffee cup. It's cute. Snow, much fun. God bless. Much fun. Yeah. I love a good mom pun. Anytime. Not a whole lot's happening, you know? I'm just cozying back in. Mm-hmm. Round two today. I know, me too. I pet my dog. I love that. Well, one of them, Jetty, he was upstairs sleeping, gave him little pets. Ate a Kit Kat. <laughs> I ate a Kit Kat too. There's so much Christmas candy, which I'm not complaining about. Yeah, I went out and said hi to Taylor. He asked me how it went. I said, pretty freaking good, I think. And he said he's excited to listen to it. So we for sure have a listener. We have two because Eric asked me how it went too. And I said it went good. And then I talked about 
uh, my hair dryer. And then he said my hair looked beautiful. So really what we needed. Wow. Kit Kat, compliments, coffee, ready to go. Ready to go. Do you want to go first this time or do you want me to go first again? Um, do you want to go first? So that way we can end on something good. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. I will say my story has a trigger warning for attempted suicide. Okay. And if you're not careful, you can see some pretty graphic photos when you search this story on Google. Oh gosh. Okay. Also for mine, we'll be talking about um, there, there's mentions of sexual, there's a lot of mentions of, of sexual assault and rape. So I'm going to do my best to, um, tread lightly and be kind, um, and exit out as much as possible if I can and use different words. However, there's a lot of it in this story. So I'll, I'll try and mention only what's important to the case and we'll go from there. But I am doing the case of Eileen Warnes. I don't know who this is. Ha <laughs> ha my favorite. So there are not a lot of women who are serial killers. Correct. They, they exist. They're out there for sure. <laughs> as she, um, but it's like women don't kill as much. It seems yeah. like yeah. Cis women don't seem to as much as like cis men. Like there's just a lot there. And I might just be pulling this out of nowhere. Isn't there like a lot of research basically being like if women were to kill, they're a lot, they're less impulsive about it. So they are a lot better about like covering it up. I think so. I think there, I think it's like more, yeah, more thought out. It's the same kind of thing. Like as a trigger warning suicide, like there's a lot more of like women go to completion, but men act on it more. But I think you're right. Yeah, this is just going to be a rough one. Um, but I think it is important to, in all of like the research that we talk about in this podcast, like I, I will be doing like all types of people who kill and also just like spooky uh, things. But it's important to highlight like, you know, not all serial killers are men. There's the majority are mm-hmm. and they're all fucking pieces of trash. Yes. Um, you know, there's also women who, who do as well. So Eileen, her, she was born Eileen Carol Pittman and she was born in Rochester, Michigan. Um, on February 26, 1956. So she today would probably be like 70s, 60. Yeah, 70s. Mm-hmm. She was born to um, Diane Warnes and Leo Pittman. They were 14 and 16 when they were married. They were married in June 1954. Oh, boy. So mom, what? Mom was 14 or dad was 14? Mom was 14. <laughs> We're starting off on a really good place. Strong. Really solid, strong, strong. I'm just thinking about like my parents, not to give their ages away. However, my God. Anyway, but they divorced like less than two years into their marriage. Not surprised. That's way too fucking young. Wow, to be 16 and divorced. <laughs> I know. Um, Eileen had one other brother. Keith, and he was born in March of 1955. Okay. Okay. All right. So here's what we know about her parents. Again, this backstory is really important to understanding why later. Mom, Diane, left the children to her parents, in, and they were adopted by the grandparents in 1960. Okay. We'll get to that. Um, the dad, Leo, uh, Eileen never met her father. He was not around. Um, let's see. So 1960, they were like three and four when they were adopted by their grandparents. So we learned that there's some, some places that say that they didn't, uh, Eileen and Keith didn't know that their grandparents weren't their biological parents until they were like 11, like 10 and 11, which we'll get into why that's bad. Dad was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So for those who don't know what schizophrenia is, this is again where we put on our social work lens. We look at it. Mental illness in general is not inherently bad, right? There are things that happen in the brain, the lack of certain chemicals, things like that, that contribute as well as other behavioral environmental factors 
that can have a person have mental illness. Schizophrenia is one of those. You have to have two of the more of this following criteria for at least a month or longer. You have to have delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, like catatonic behavior. Other symptoms include inappropriate affect. So like laughing in the absence of any, anything. Dysphoric mood can be depression, anxiety or anger, anxiety and phobias, depersonalization, derealization, meaning that you like things around you don't feel real, uh, like auditory, visual and auditory hallucinations, social cognition deficits, like you have a hard time processing like language, your executive function, all of these things can contribute to a diagnosis. Also like hostility and aggression. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, all of these things can be treatable. Mm -hmm. What I do love, fun fact, is that I watch a lot of TikTok, as you know, and there's a few people on TikTok who have this diagnosis, and I think that's really cool that they're able to share their experiences um, and what schizophrenia looks like on a day-to-day basis and not, they're not fucking monsters Yeah, um, because they're not, and this doesn't make the dad a monster, but it explains, it explains her later, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So we know way more about schizophrenia now than we did back in the 1960s. Like it was just, I think it was just being like researched and talked about um, how to treat it. Like there's a medication that you can take, um, chloraz- it's chlorpromazine, but we didn't know that around, until around like 1960. Okay. So left untreated, it can be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Not for people around those, but like for the person itself can be pretty fucking bad. Like mm-hmm. I can't even fucking imagine yeah. how hard it could be for people. But the thing about mental illnesses and things like that is that they can be passed down in certain ways. So there's something called I believe it's epigenetics. Um, basically trauma in the womb uh, or like trauma that your, mo- your grandmother, your mother experiences can affect the child in the womb. Oh, okay. Like the, the, and you know, if there's like a lack of chemicals or things like, just like all of those things, do your research, but it can affect the child. Mm-hmm. And those who have schizophrenia can, it is, can be a little bit more likely that those, that child develops it. Mm-hmm. Not always the case, again, it's case by case. When we look at different things at my job, we look at mental health of parents because it could help with the children. Old daddy-o was convicted of sex crimes against children. <laughs> So he was in a, uh, a facility okay. and he passed away by his own accord Ugh. in 1969. Okay. Okay. So that's dad, you mom, not a lot moved her babies to the grandparents. It happens. Now the grandparents, this is a doozy again, trigger warning. This is hard to talk about. The kids were docted, adopted in like 1960. They did believe they were their real parents until like 11, 12 years old, mm-hmm. and they sexually abuse these children. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go into this and then into kind of adoption a little bit, and then we'll go into the rest of it. So at age 11, Eileen was trading sex for material items with other school children. Oh. And there was also proof that she may have get engaged in sexual activities with her brother. Oh, boy. Now, here's what I will say. Children cannot consent. Correct. I don't care what you fucking say. I don't care what anybody says. They can't. That is a child. They don't understand. They may understand in certain retrospects, but they are not old enough. Some of this, not this, but some types of sexual behavior can be considered appropriate determined by age. There's an age where kids start to explore themselves, get used to their bodies, things like that. That is normal. Mm -hmm. No matter the age, they can't consent until they're like 18. Yeah. And even then consent is ongoing. It's all the things I could go on. I could go on for 20 minutes, but I won't. Anyway. So again, there was proof that she may have engaged in sexual activities with her brother. Now you're probably wondering um, what the actual, actual fuck is going on here. Well, if a child is abused like that, they're going to think that behavior is normal and acceptable. Sure. And if, especially if it's by a parental figure, doing those same types of activities with a brother isn't going to seem uncommon. Yeah. 
When she was, okay, so she said that her alcoholic grandfather had assaulted her and beaten her when she was a child. In 1970, when she was 14, she became pregnant by one of her grandfather's friends. Oh, boy. Love to see it. Okay, I don't. She gave birth to a boy in 1971 in a home for unwed mothers. Okay. Which, (laughs) that name, sorry. Okay, and the child was placed for adoption. Grandma died. Grandpa kicked her out of the house. She became a sex worker for survival. She had to do it. This is what she knew how to do, unfortunately, because of her upbringing. And this is what she knew how to do to survive. Yeah. So let's talk about all of that. So there are a few things I think are important to understand. Adoption, one, is beautiful. But there comes a time in any child who's adopted where they will want to know who they are and where they've come from. Mm-hmm. It does not matter. If they did not know they were adopted and were fed incorrect information, it can be very traumatic. You'll learn, you learn this in social work, but there's this term called open adoption. And it doesn't mean like always that you, if it's appropriate to like continue to have the biological parents in the kiddos' lives. Uh, but what it does mean is that when a child comes to you and says, I want to know who my biological parents are, you don't dis- aren't dismissive and you aren't saying, oh, you don't need to know, or, oh, I'm your real, like all of those things. Like if a kid asks questions, they're more likely to be okay if you answer or help find those questions. Yeah. Otherwise it can create a lot of resentment and it can create a lot of identity issues in children. Not all the time. Again, this is always a case by case basis. Sometimes kids who don't, I don't know. There's just a lot of research to show that if kids are supported in figuring out who their biological parents are, if that's something that they want to find out, the kid does a lot better in life than if they're not, if they don't know. Okay. So box number one over. Now, a spit, so that's layer one of her trauma. Layer two is she was adopted to someone who abused her. Yeah. So not only was, did she think that they were her real parents and then find out they're not, but then they also started abusing her. This, this type of abuse, like all types of abuse, but still can lead to maladaptive behaviors, behavioral problems, anger, aggression, sexual behavior problems, PTSD, all of those things. Yeah. So when we wonder why, we can look at this and say, okay, so she was assaulted, right? So it's also something in um, survivors of, of assault, um, they can show sometimes there can be those same kind of behaviors because they're processing that trauma. So sometimes survivors can become, I don't know, like they like have sexual, more sexual behavior because they're trying to own back their body. Really, that's basically it. That's not a bad thing because it's not. They're trying to retake back what was taken from them. I'll get very angry if people come for my sweet babies. Anyway, again, this doesn't excuse her behavior, but explains why she acts this way. Everybody always asks, like, why do murderers do what they do? Well, this is why. Yeah. Okay. So that's layer two. Mm -hmm. We understand why she's doing all this. And then layer three, she becomes pregnant and gives birth at 14. I don't know about you, (laughs) but I remember when I was 14. That was 11 years ago. Like, can you imagine giving birth at 14? What fresh hell is that? That's going to be so traumatic. (laughs) But again, she was 14. Yeah. That is too fucking young. Yeah. Okay. Even at 22, I'm like, that's too young. (laughs) You got time. I can barely care for my plants. You're honestly, you're doing the most. And if you never wanted to have children, then that's your choice. Thank you. I'll fight anybody. I'll do it. I'll fight them too. Okay, good. Okay, we'll fight them together. It's let's go. Honestly, it's on site. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 Back to this. Yeah. Um, going into that and looking at her crimes, no wonder she hated and trust and didn't trust men. Yeah. Like again, doesn't fucking excuse her behavior, but it makes some sense. I would hate and hate and not trust men either. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Okay. So she been through a lot, this little chicken nugget, right? Little chicken nugget. But she killed a lot of people. So we, oh, she's not too much of a chicken nugget. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert. I'm sorry. Did you not know what I'm talking about? No, I'm along for the ride. Okay, good. You're right. I, spoiler alert. It gets bad. 
age of 18, like 1974, she's arrested in Colorado for a DUI, sorry, like conduct and having a 22 caliber pistol firing it too. So later she was charged with failure to appear. You have to go to court if you're summoned. It's just the thing you have to do or you're going to get arrested. In 1976, she hitchhiked to Florida, which is where everything goes down. Okay. My story also takes place partly in Florida. (gasps) A theme. Where the things go down. I love that. So she meets a 69-year-old yacht club president. All right. Gratz. They marry. Oh, okay. Got on her. Uh, She then, like, gets into some trouble, hits him with his own cane. He gets a restraining order against her. Okay. Within weeks of being married. Talk about... A happy honeymoon. Happy honeymoon. Okay. In 1976, again, she's arrested in a a different Florida county, charged with assault and disturbing the peace for throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. Okay. This is showing the, the, this will be explained. So on July 17th, 1976, Keith dies from cancer. Which one's Keith? The husband? Keith is her brother. Oh, okay. He dies from cancer, and she receives the $10,000 for his life insurance. Oh, okay. Around that same time, Warnus, like Eileen and her husband, get a annul their marriage after only nine weeks. So annulment is kind of interesting. Do you know, can you, do you kind of get the basis for annulment? Yeah. Okay. So basically, like, they were married for such a short time that I think that they could get that annulled. They were like, no harm, no foul. Never happened. Never happened. We don't talk about it. Nope. It like the divorce proceedings would take longer than the actual fucking marriage. So yeah. Okay. So shit's kind of hitting the fan for her. Like she's not had a good life, and then she gets married, and then like she doesn't. Mm -hmm. She is given a fine for drunk driving again. She uses the money she inherited to pay that off, and then buy more luxuries like a new car, which she again wrecks. Okay. 1981 she's arrested for armed robbery of a convenience store she stole like 35 bucks and a pack of cigarettes good time good time she goes to prison in may of that year well she goes in 1982 and then she's released in 1983 in 1984 she's again arrested for trying to for bad checks in key west wolf yeah wolf and then in 1985 she's Named as a potential subject of theft of a re- revolver and ammunition in another Florida county. 1986, she's arrested in Miami. Car theft, resisting arrest, obstruction of justice. Oh, boy. So here's a fun fact about obstruction of justice. So that's when you... Do you, are you I guess you're familiar. Just cause, yeah. But for those who don't know, yeah. like obstruction of justice is like leaving the scene, like trying to like resist arrest... Which is what she did. But so like, for example, a police chase, like you're chasing, someone's chasing you in a car. Like that's obstruction of justice. She also provided her identification as her aunt's name. And they found a a gun in the car. All right. It was also a stolen car. It was the car theft. So just like three fucking doozies in one. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's really adding to her list of things here. Mm Mm-hmm. They continue to find guns, like, in all the cases, they continue to find guns in her car, and she's stealing shit. Okay, so she then meets Tyria Moore at a hotel in Daytona Beach. She's a hotel maid at a lesbian, and they met at a lesbian bar. We'd love to see it. They move in together. Uh, Warner supports them by uh, being a sex worker. July 4th, 1987, they're questioned by police due to a bar fight. Like, just, like, she, no matter who she's with, she's getting into fucking trouble. Yeah. And she continues to say that she loved more until the day that she, until, like, the end. That's precious. Love to see it. So, remember her. Remember more. Remember everybody else. Yeah. Sure. So, she, the year span between 1989 and 1990 were very busy for little Miss Eileen. For two years, you said? No, one year. Oh, okay. Yeah. That year? Mm-hmm. That whole, that year, that time span between 1989 and 1990. It was like, oh. a pretty busy year for her. What'd she do? Uh, she murdered uh, seven men. 
Oh boy. All happened all in Florida. All of her victims were men ranging from 43 to 65 years old. Her MO was to get them out of their car on a highway or a roadway and shoot them. Okay. Okay. So we'll go through the names of the men's. I think is also, now that I'm thinking about it, an important thing to note is that look at the ages of these men and the men that she, man that she married earlier. And then think about, I wonder what age her fucking grandfather was. I'm considering this might be projecting a little bit on her part. Just a little bit. Okay. So first we have Richard Mallory. Okay. He was 51. And in November 30th of 1989, she kills him claiming it was self-defense. He's technically a convicted rapist. Florida police find his abandoned vehicle on December 13th. His body was found several miles away in a wooded area. Shot a few times. Two bullets to the left lung were found to have been his cause of death. And this is the murder that he would be condemned on. Or she would be condemned on, excuse me. Oh, really? So then there's David Spears. He's age 43. Uh, He was a construction worker in Florida. On June 1st, 1990, his body was found along Highway 19. He had been shot six times. Oof. Charles Karskadden was age 40. May 31st, 1990, he was killed. His body was found on June 6th. Um, He had been shot nine times with a small caliber weapon. Oh, so we're just keep on shooting more. Oh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's Peter Symes, age 65. His car was found on July 4th in Orange Springs, Florida. Now, and I'll talk about his case more in a second, but uh, Wernus and Moore were seen abandoning that car after a car accident. Oh. Um, and his car and his body was never found. Oh. Um, then there's Troy Burris, age 50. He was a sausage salmon from Florida. Me too. Um, me too. Uh, July 31st, 1990, he was reported missing. And then on August 4th, that same year, his body was found in a wooded area on State Road 19 in Florida. He had been shot out twice. At what point do the police go, hmm, what's going on here? Great question. I think I might get to that. Okay. Okay. So then there's Charles Humphrey. He was 56. He's a tired, retired, excuse me, U.S. Air Force major. He was a child abuse investigator and a former chief of police. September, around September 12th, 1990, his body was found in Marion County. It looks like Marion County was like a prominent county for her. He was shot six times in the head and his and torso. And his car was found in Suwannee County, Florida. Okay. And then the last one is Walter Geno Antonio. He was 62. He's a police reservist. Um, his body was found on November 19th, 1990, near a remote lar- lodging road, and he had been shot four times. Four days later, or five days later, excuse me, his car was found in a different county in Florida. It's also kind of important to note, too, I guess, that two of the bodies, two of the victims' bodies were nude. David Spears and then Walter were, like, their nude bodies were found. Oh. Okay. 1990, July 4th. Kind of where it all rolls down. If you remember, um, July 4th, that's when the car accident happened. So Eileen and her uh, partner, Moore, got into a car accident with Peter Symes' car. There are a bunch of witnesses, and so they gave a lot of descriptions. They got a lot of descriptions of the women, and the the, was given to police. They were able to find some of the vic, like some of multiple victims' stuff in a belongings in a pawn shop, Mm. and they were able to retrieve Warner's fingerprints like through that in the car. I think. Wow. Yeah, it takes a while to investigate things. uh, Things, as you know. You have to have enough evidence to be able to file a warrant with a judge. Like you have to show that you have enough proof to take somebody in even. Um, And that can take a while before a warrant is going to be issued. So that's probably why it took so long. Also, because it can be so unheard of for women to murder, Mm -hmm. they probably were thinking of looking at somebody else. 
Yeah. Probably is my assumption is they didn't even, and because there just were little variations in the murders. I mean, obviously there were some big like similarities. I'm sure they didn't connect them for a really long time. So on January 9th, 1991, she was arrested again on a warrant at a bar in Volusia County. They got her on a warrant. I can't remember what the warrant was for, but they got her. They got her. More was located, had run off to Scranton, Pennsylvania. Good. Good. And she would, and so they knew that she was an accomplice of some kind, even if it was just for the car accident, which we think is only what she was. But she was given immunity if she was able to help confess slash indict Warness wow. on this on anything so under the police care she was in a hotel they put her in a hotel while they could like figure shit out and she would call eileen multiple times asking for her help to clear her own name um and i think because of that and because how eileen states that she loved more on january 16th 91 1991 she confessed to all the killings but claimed that all men had tried to assault her and it was self-defense okay okay now we'll go to the trial so 1992, beginning of 1992, like January 14th, is the trial of Richard Mallory. Now, there are certain, obviously there are certain laws and rules in terms of mentioning other cases of someone um, to build your case for a current conviction, things like that. But under a Florida rule, they were also allowed to bring in evidence from the other cases oh. Um and like to show her other crimes, like the crimes that I mentioned earlier, just all like that petty theft and like yeah. this, like rifle charges. Um, it shows her pattern of illegal activity. So yeah. it's showing the jury that she is da- dangerous to society. It's basically yeah. part of the, what they need to show. On January 12, 27th, she was convicted. Her defense had tried to state rules of insanity. So they had gotten a psychological evaluation done on Eileen. Mm -hmm. She was diagnosed with borderline and antisocial personal disorder, personality disorder. But the judge was like, sure, and I don't give a fuck. So they sentenced her to death. So that's death. Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry, I was drinking a drink of water when you were- okay. Just going. Rolling through that? Rolling through it. Yeah. So this is her first death sentence conviction. Okay. And they were like- they were like, oh, you have borderline. That's okay, but we don't give a fuck. And we're going to set you in pseudo die anyway. Okay. Okay. Great. So we know that. Great. Well, there's more. There, it's, There's like six others. So <laughs> um, March 31st, 1992, she pleads guilty to, to no contest. Oh, so like the, the plea is no contest. Is that what it's called? And then like that genuine, like that means you're pleading guilty. Like. It's not innocence or guilty, like you're saying you're guilty. She did that for the murders of Dick Humphreys. That was Charles. His name is Dick. I don't... Anyway. Um, Troy Burris and David Spears. Okay. She did this because she wanted to get right with God and was given... And stated that Mallory had... She's like, just so you know, Mallory had raped me, but the others didn't. So she's trying to, quote unquote, trying to fess up. She was given three more death sentences. (laughs) Oh, boy. During her conviction... Of the three, I so I watched um, a couple of YouTube videos on this. There's actually like a YouTube page oh. called Eileen Warness. I don't know if it's like her. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I watched her get this conviction. Yeah, and she said after. So the judge said, "I convict you for the sentence you to death for the murders of this guy, the murders of this guy, and the murder of this guy." And then she said, "Thank you." And then said, I'll see y'all. I'll be up in heaven. Why all y'all be rotten in hell? Uh, what a quote. And then, okay, this is, so she continued to talk over the judge, which gives me some stress uh-huh. uh, as a person who goes in front of a judge a lot. <sighs> so trigger warning for this next sentence. She's said, may your children be raped, raped up the ass. Oh boy. And then she said, you're putting someone who was raped in jail. Ma'am, read the fucking room. <gasps> Jesus Christ, help me. <laughs> Ma'am, you, you're you not being arrested for being a victim. It gets better. It gets so much better. So. How'd the judge take that? Oh, he, so judges can be my favorite. 
uh-huh. as you know, to be a judge, I think you really have to have a really hard head and be really good at hiding your emotions because the minute you show emotions, you can be showing bias towards something, right? Yeah. And part of being a judge is being unbiased so that you can listen to the facts of the case and make the most informed decision. So he was over it, man. <laughs> he was like, okay, all right. Well, the appeal, this is when you can appeal. Like he was just giving her appeal information. Oh, okay. Um, he wasn't even, honestly, he was, it's good to not interact with when someone is saying those kind of things because they just want a reaction out of you. That really uh-huh. was what that was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But- so she says that. That was a good video to watch. I watched that and I was like, uh, Lord, Lord have mercy. Okay. So in June of 1992, she pleads guilty to Karskadden's murder. So he was the one who was murdered in 1990. He was, he was shot nine times with a small caliber weapon, that guy. Yeah. So she pled guilty to that one. Um, and then that November she was given two more death sentences. So we got like one, two, like six. That's a lot. One, two, three, four, five. So it's like a lot. It's like one person. Yeah. Which, it's like they really could have just given her one and called it a day. Which I got, I got some words to say for this in a second. And then on, okay. So during that like time, her and her defense tried to show again that Mallory had been in max security prison in, in Maryland for a while due to the attempted rape of another person from 1958 to 1962. They also wanted to show that he had quote unquote sociopathic trends. That is the reason why it was a self-defense murder, but the judge was like, um, no. Okay. And that, that was not admitted for evidence. And she was denied a retrial for that. All righty. On February um, of 1993, she pled guilty for the murder of Walter Antonio, and also given a death sentence. So now we're up to all seven. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess. Okay, let's count. I mean, minute. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so there's one. She wasn't charged for Peter's Peter Symes' um, murder because his body was never found. Oh, Unfortunately, okay. they couldn't. Like the new Taylor Swift side, no body, no crime. You know that song. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the same thing here. I don't think they had enough. First of all, she sentenced to death like 10,000 fucking times. Yeah. So really like whatever. I mean, it doesn't give peace to that guy's family, which is I think the most yeah like traumatic part of that is that they don't get the satisfaction that she was charged for the, his murder, but I hope it gives them some relief that she was charged for the others. And this thing about the death penalty, the death penalty is, I don't, like if it weren't so skewed against people of color, yeah, it'd be a different story. But it is. I'm pretty anti-death penalty. Me too. <laughs> Just in general, I wasn't for like a really long time. That we we there was some growth there for sure. Yeah. Um, it's just like like obviously people need to pay for the things that they've done. Obviously. Yeah. However, the amount of times that people of color, specifically like black men. Yeah, her charged and then like sentenced to death and then like found not guilty, guilty and then sentenced to death and you just fuck me, dude. Like that is just so fucking terrible. And one of the things that really like changed my opinion is just it was like I think it's so much worse, you know, being sentenced for your whole life in jail. Yeah, you know. Oh, do you know what people do? You know, I mean, you know, people do to people convicted like murderers of children, like people who like all of those kind of things. They get their shit rocked in jail. Yeah. And not like I also like believe in the Jesus. So like, you know, I know like everyone's got a thing, but you know, here's your own personal hell. You can go to jail. Yeah. Do what you want to do. So box done. So over time she would tell kind of different stories about everything that has happened. There's been a lot of documentaries on her and things like that. I think towards the end of her life, she mentioned like off camera to someone that it was self-defense, but at that point she wanted to die. But um, I watched another YouTube video of an interview the day before she was executed. Okay. So she was, so that was like October 8th, 2002. Okay. And they were asking her just like, how you feeling? Like, which God, is such a way. <laughs> like, what are you at? Like, how the fuck do you think she's feeling? Anyway, 
that interviewer choice questions. So she was like, you know what? I'm prepared to die. And she was all right with it. And she said that, so this is all like, this is what I took from this YouTube video. She said that the cops knew who she was when Mallory died, her first victim, and they let her kill the rest of them. Okay. She said she had left fingerprints everywhere and they, as in the cops, covered it up. She's like, I did some really sloppy work. Interessante. Her eyes went really big. She said she was ready to go. She said, I was tortured at Beast TI. There was an intercom in the room where they applied sonic pressure. Oh. And that she was, that sonic pressure was being used on her when she was being interviewed by the police. What does this pressure do? Not really sure. But like that would make her mess up or something like that. She said, I'm like not afraid of dying. Like I know I'm going to heaven where all the angels and the babies are. She says death would probably be like Star Trek and she'd be beamed up into a space vehicle into another planet. Uh, You know, I've heard a lot of things about what happens after death. Mm -hmm. That's a new one. That's a new one for me. Yeah. I wanted to like put that in there because I love Star Trek and that one just got me. The thing that got me the most before I talk about her execution, her last words were, she said, like in this interview, she said, I did the right thing. I saved a lot of people. And I said a lot more people from being raped or murdered. Which, after you went through her whole childhood, I come to understand... Why she would say that. Why she would say that and where she's coming from. Where she's coming from. So, when watching this, as a social work background, anthropology minor, all those fun things, I study a lot of, like, people, the way they speak and how they look when they speak. And you, I mean... (sighs) You can tell that she has definitely, like, I don't know if she was medicated. She didn't really seem like it, but she definitely is mentally ill. Mm -hmm. You could just, I mean, you look at her, like, it's interesting to hear her speak. You can just tell that she has been through so much, but she did a lot. And her, her brain is not all the way there. Yeah. I don't know how, like, I'm trying to be as nice as possible, but also, like, she fucking murdered a bunch of men and, like, didn't give a shit. Yeah. So, yeah, she said, I did the right thing. I saved a lot of people, which is really interesting. And the, and the interviewer was like, wait, so are you, like, confessing that you did it or was it self-defense? I didn't get to rush the rest of it, but. Yeah. I learned this on YouTube. It'll pop up. You can watch it. So. Um, she was executed on October 9th, 2002. She declined her last meal, which you can do it for up to like 20 bucks. Um, but she took coffee instead. (laughs) A true champ. Her last words were, as a fun fact, I'd like to just say that I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back. I'll be back. And that's the case of Eileen Warnes. <laughs> what a gal. She really, like, her life was so sad. Oh, yeah. It does not excuse how awful she was. No. But it does so explain it. You know, and her reality was, she probably did think it was self-defense. Yeah. That's probably where she was in her mind. And one of her victims was a convicted rapist. Mm-hmm yeah she's really interesting yeah that's a like you said 1990 busy year for her bit busy year just she just went on like a rampage yeah which that's also really interesting mm-hmm. so i wonder what i have to relook and see but there must have been a catalyst for that like more than just her being abused by her grandfather yeah but like there are times where like it starts with like more petty crimes and smaller um, convictions like the DUI, like the like different gun charges before people murder. Not again, case by case, not all the time, but that is something that does happen. Okie doke. So. So. I'm excited about this one. Okay. So today I'm talking about Marcus Shrinker. Okay. There's a swindled podcast episode about him, mm. and I used a lot of ABC's news articles 
and a lot of those were on the way back machine oh the story takes place in starts in 2008 so so we start off in 2008 in indianapolis and vienna okay 38 year old financial advisor marcus shrinker had kind of the picture perfect life of a successful financial advisor mm-hmm. he was married to michelle shrinker who was a pretty little pretty blonde woman Aww. they met at purdue yeah and then they had three kids and they lived in like a multi-million dollar home in the suburbs of indiana wow okay yeah they would take family vacations with private planes <laughs> like company jets that were flown by Marcus. He was quoted saying, there's a saying back in college that flying is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. He said, flying to me, it was a lifelong dream, end quote. Okay, kind of gross, but all right. Yeah. Um, so he flew a lot of planes and had planes and had that at his disposal. Okay. He was listed as the owner for multiple different investment firms, but of course, Things are always too good to be true. Right. The beginning of 2008, the Indiana Department of Insurance filed a complaint against Shrinker, alleging that he cost seven investors more than $250,000 because he did not tell them about fees for changing an annuity policy, I believe is how it's pronounced, which annuity is a fixed payment from your company during retirement. So it's just part of kind of your retirement plan. Mm Mm-hmm. He did this by forging client signatures, and these fees are similar to if you take money out of your 401k mm-hmm. early. And I think, I didn't write it down, but I believe it was like, could, for a couple clients, it could have been upwards of like $60,000. So these are wealthy people, but it's also not chump change that is going on here. Mm-hmm. So he was putting money, clients' money into annuity accounts that they couldn't touch for like 15 plus years. So this is kind of a different thing he was doing. So he was moving like specific clients' money that were like 80 plus years old, 70s or 80s, and they couldn't touch their money for 15 years. Cool. Smart. Smart. Uh, during the year of 2008, uh, Shrinker was being investigated by the state of Indiana and the FBI for fraud and blink- blinking, B-I-L-K-I-N-G, which just feels like a fancy word for fraud. Um, it's to obtain or withhold money from someone by deceit or without justification. Is that like a rich person's version of? It must be. So blinky, bil- bilking, I think. I should have looked up how to say this. It's okay. It's dumb. It's to obtain or withhold money from someone by deceit or deception, by deceit or without justification. So basically just to defraud or cheat. Then... He, once people were onto this, this is all in 2008, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, we, busy years. Busy years. How old were we? Young. We were young little nuggets. So he then started convincing people to invest in a European currency fund that didn't exist, mm-hmm. including his aunt. Mm-hmm. He was able to gain $1.4 million from this endeavor and used it for personal expenses. Mm-hmm. So then... December was a rough month for Marcus. Mm. Marcus was being sued by a Kansas-based company that was wanting to recoup $1.4 million in losses after Marcus failed to repay commissions from insurance that annuity policies that never happened. Yeah. Good. So getting a lot of money really fast that he didn't earn. And he, yeah, I don't think we've mentioned we're in Kansas. So that's a little fun fact. A little fun fact. So he failed to pay that company back for policies that had lapsed and were not uh, enacted. Nice. It was then he told his attorney that in 2009 he intended to file for bankruptcy. Okay, good. In the 10 years leading up to January 2009, there are at least eight lawsuits filed against uh, Marcus in his career. Here's where shit hits the fan for Marcus, poor little guy. Not actually, though. On December 30th, the dates are going to be very important in this story. So on December 30th, uh, Michelle, his wife, filed for divorce. Marcus was cheating on Michelle with a woman named Kelly Baker that worked at the airport. Mm -hmm. Yes. A scandal. A scandal. So then on December 31st is when Marcus's financial advisor license had expired. That led the authorities to be able to raid his home in Indianapolis. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but at the time of the raid, Marcus and Kelly uh, had flown to Florida to celebrate the new year. At the raid, they were able to seize his family passports, uh, $6,000 in cash, the title to the Lexus, and deposit slips for bank accounts in Michelle's name. Okay. Um, they also took six computers and nine large plastic tubs filled with various financial and corporate documents. Could you imagine just having $6,000 just like in cash? In cash? Taylor pulled a $20 bill out of his desk the other day and I was like, wait, you have cash? (laughs) (laughs) I have like $2 in cash and I'm like, oh, so nice. I'm not joking. I have a quarter of cash, a quarter on me. That's my cash. I have so many coins. Yes. Do you ever like, sorry for the tangent, but do you ever like have cash on you and I'm like this doesn't count as spending money because it's cash all the time that's why I don't have cash on okay me yeah me too <laughs> everyone's like oh you budget your money better if you have cash no I don't so I'm like it's already out of my bank account this is not active money I have yeah like it's basically gone so yeah, I can buy this eyeshadow palette and this coffee damn it it's not a way to live but it's so fun okay yeah okay, sorry so we're coming back on a doozy of a bullet point. Okay, cool. Uh, on January 4th, he lost his stepdad to lung cancer. Damn. And it was a really short fought battle, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then on January 9th, here's where things start going. Um, a federal judge issued a judgment against Marcus for his company for a half a million dollars. And it was kind of a similar case to the Kansas-based company, but this was in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um and this was also the day they buried his stepfather. Oh, geez. So just like a hard, just a little bit of a rough day. Rough day. So things were adding up for him. Mm-hmm. Then on January 10th, Marcus traveled to Alabama to store a motorcycle because he claimed it had broken on his way down to Florida. And he told the owner he'd be back for it on Monday. So then on January 11th, Marcus takes off from an Indiana airport with a single engine plane to Destin, Florida to visit his dad. While over Alabama, he began experiencing some turbulence and told air traffic control that his windshield had broken into the plane and he was bleeding profusely. Goodbye. I'm leaving. (laughs) Air traffic control then lost contact with Marcus after that, but they tracked his phone for two hours before the plane crashed in Milton, Florida. So a military jet was deployed to follow the plane and intercept it after the call. When they caught up to the plane, some things weren't adding up. Great. (laughs) Love that for us. When they intercepted the plane, they noticed that the plane door was open and the cockpit was dark. Why was it dark, Claire? So spooky. It's so spooky. I fucking hate flying, dude. No, thank you. Okay, keep going. I didn't know you didn't like planes. Ah, no. (laughs) I might not have picked this story then. No, it's okay. Okay. I just don't like flying. It's fear of, you know, crashing and dying. Yeah. Anyway. So then amongst the wreckage of the plane, the windshield was not blown out and there were no signs of blood, which Marcus claimed he was bleeding profusely. Right. The plane crashed into a Florida swamp. Luckily, no one was hurt, but the plane did crash fairly close to a residential neighborhood. Convenient. Convenient. And there were no signs of Marcus amongst the wreckage or Marcus's body. While the crash was being investigated in Florida on January 12th, a man with Marcus's license approached an Alabama police officer claiming he was in a canoe accident. (laughs) Not knowing about the accident, the police officer took the man to a hotel where he was claiming to meet friends. Once word spread about that they went back to the hotel, the plane crashed, they went back to the hotel, and he was gone. Great. So then on January 13th, he had checked into a Florida campground where he logged onto his laptop that was stored uh, with the bike in Alabama because he did go back and um, pick up his bike and a couple other things that he stored in like a storage unit, basically. Okay. But Marcus logged on to the laptop that was uh, stored with the bike and learned that his plane did not make it to the Gulf of Mexico like he intended, but crashed near that neighborhood. And this is when he learned he was the target of an active manhunt. Did he th- Did he jump out of his plane? You're getting to that. Okay. I'm getting to that. Okay. Sorry. So that night, the night of January 13th, 
Tom Britt, Marcus's neighbor and friend and business advisor, received an email. And here's where things get a little dicey on the suicide stuff. Um, it was a 300-letter word for his wife and kids mm-hmm. and appeared to be a suicide note. Mm-hmm. So Britt called 911 and asked the police, and the police asked him to keep that note private, which he did. Good. He sent it from his Google email. God damn it. You can hear it in the Swindle podcast, but there's a quote from a police officer being officer being like, yeah, he sent it from Google. You need to roast a person, police officer. Jeez. Yeah. So after that, that's when the search for Marcus intensified and charges were brought by an Indiana judge issuing a warrant for his arrest and for financial fraud charges. It was ultimately that email that led to his capture on January 13, 2009. Wow. Yeah, the email led the police to Marcus at the Florida campground where they found him. Um, here's a very specific trigger warning uh, where he had attempted to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. When police found him, he was in rough shape, but mm-hmm. alive. And they took him to a hospital where he only spent a day or so. That checks out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you do it? Your question. He wanted to make it all look like an accident. <laughs> so that way his wife and children would get the insurance money. Wow. Yeah. The kind. The kind part of him. Got it. He made the call and then jumped out of the plane with a parachute uh, and put the plane in autopilot where he thought he would, it would make it to the Gulf of Mexico, but he left it like 200 miles early or let, let it to go for 200 miles. Yeah. So apparently he just put that plane in autopilot and flew it. Yeet it out of there. Yeet it out of there. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to go jump out of a fucking plane today. Yeah. You do you do what you got to do, I, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I had, you know, things were adding up real quickly for the guy. Things were not looking up. That's what happens when you commit fraud. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> he ultimately denies that he was trying to fake his own death and maintains that the losses, the financial losses were real and happened once the market crashed. He also claims that his, he denies it all, but also claims that his wife was involved and knew his plan to fake his own death. She did not sign up for that at all. Absolutely not. She was, I will say though, she was the chief financial officer, but she has stated that she was just, that was just a title for like kind of the picture perfect couple of like CFO and like hotshot advisor. Mm-hmm. And that she was just a glorified bookkeeper. Police officers denied to bring charges against her. Okay, cool. So he was charged for two additional felonies for making fake distress charges calls mm-hmm. and for willingly destroying an aircraft. Mm-hmm. Marcus was then charged with 11 counts of securities fraud and with not being properly registered as an Indiana investment officer, investment advisor after mm-hmm. the state investigations. And he, of course, used money from clients' investments for personal gain. In June of 2009, so this was all a pretty quick proceeding because this all happened at the start of January of 2009. Marcus ple- pled guilty to the federal charges in relationship in relation to the destruction of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Then, of August, he was sentenced to four years and three months in prison, and he was required to pay $34,000 to the Coast Guard. Yep, because the Coast Guard was super yeah. super mad. Because they're like, we put some people out there. Yeah. I would be mad too. And they were not letting him go. (laughs) They said, harm done, foul done. And then he was also in that uh, judgment ordered to pay $871,000 to the plane's lien holder. Yep. A lien holder is someone that is a lender that has a legal interest in your property until you pay it off in full. Who was the lien holder? Do we know who the lien holder was? Um, on Wikipedia, it says it was Harley Davidson. <laughs> okay, I didn't want that to be true. <laughs> that's a fact now. <laughs> Even if yes. it's not true, that's what we're going to go with. I love that. Yeah, I decided I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. Because like, there yeah. was no, like the, there was no like extra link I could like click on to go to like the news article mm-hmm. that said that. But also it was there. So so then in August of 2010, he pled guilty to five counts of security fraud and was ordered to serve 10 years in jail and pay the victims 
more than six hundred and thirty thousand dollars. <gasps> Woof. He owes millions of dollars. Yeah, and so he those sentences were being served concurrently. Mm-hmm. So as of September two thousand fifteen, he was paroled, and as of two thousand nineteen, his sentence was up. He now apparently is living in Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> oh. Does he have any money? <laughs> is there any money left in that guy's bank account? <laughs> well, so his daughter came out like in 2017 and talked about how basically, not basically, like that the family was homeless after all of this and had no money. Mm. And it was really rough. And she also alleges that, like, after he was paroled, he sent her some, like, super nasty emails. Mm-hmm. They never had, like, a quote or anything of what it was. Well, they did. It was nasty stuff to send to your daughter. Oh, what a great aid, man. Like, I, of course, I believe the daughter. But, like, they also didn't ask Marcus about it or, or say that he denied comment. So I didn't want to include too much of that in there. But as of now, he's up and out after faking his own death tight like i said there's a book that you can get on amazon called bailout the life and lies of marcus shrinker that was written by matthew cox mm-hmm. that eventually one day i will cover him because he they met in prison oh my god cute it's a love story claire it is oh so then marcus wanted someone to like tell his story and then matthew wrote it but then it was also like they fought because Marcus wasn't happy with the title. Oh. A lover's quarrel. <gasps> a lover's quarrel. That's the story of Marcus Shrinker. He could have been suicidal. Like, that could actually have been a real fucking thing. Like, when he wanted to crash this plane. Yeah. I mean, again, he denies it all. But I think, you know, the writing's pretty clear on the wall that he was. Oh, and I... In some of my initial research, I saw reports of him being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but then mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything from any of like anything else. And I looked to try and find it again because I did not think that would be something interesting to include, but I couldn't find it again. So I think it's very well possible that he could have been bipolar. Something he had he had something going on that he well, just all of that. Just thinking about like all that together, yeah. Wifely, first of all, don't fucking commit fraud, but also, like, what led you to committing fraud? Okay, well, we can see, yeah, got some issues with your tissues, my my dude. Some issues with your tissues, mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's get wow, it. good, good job. That was, I've never heard of that guy. So, I was doing like initial research to like find, uh, like, uh, just have a running list of potential cases I want to cover. Mm-hmm. And the amount of things I saw that were, like, faked his own death and, like, not well. Well, like, literally, my last last episode, H.H. H. Holmes tried to fake his own fucking death. Yeah. Do people really think that's going to solve? I'm just so curious as to what people think that's going to solve. I think it was Britt, Tom Britt, his neighbor, was quoted saying, yeah, he kind of made some, like, dumb mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But things were happening so quick. Like, I don't blame him for giving it a go. Your wife leaves you. Your house is raided. You're ordered to pay half a million dollars. all, And then you lose your stepdad all within a week. Yeah, you're going to go. You, you know what? If you don't have the, the best coping skills, you don't have the means of, an, of a healthy outlet, you're going to do, you might do some drastic shit. Drastic shit. And that, unfortunately, is what he chose to do with his time. The unit the woman who rented him the like storage unit where he stored his bike um was like true to his word he came back on monday like he went back and got his bike you know wow nice is that bike harley davidson too because i would check out it was a yamaha what is this guy dude (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's amazing oh Good. What a wild guy. Wild guy. Having a hard time. Like to fly his planes. Too much. Like to much. fly his planes too much. Yeah. Deep the best time best time ever 
with your clothes on sir we got to talk about that for like a minute <laughs> are we surprised no no flying cannot be that possibly be that fun no it's the opposite i have to like take something to be okay in a plane <laughs> like i realize they're safe people are like well they're safer than x y and z well it doesn't fucking feel like it i like my feet on the ground thank you and very much that's valid the turbulence man it's like i'm going down this yeah. is my death I'm not doing it um yeah it's well through there was a i was coming back from london with my family mm-hmm. and i got really sick while we were there this was several years ago and flight back it was like really bad turbulence and i was like dying like it's the sickest i've ever been i was a little nugget the sweet little flight attendant shout out to like that homie she just was like kept bringing me like ginger ale throughout the full can she didn't even bother with the cup she was like here you go honey wow that's a that's a true mom right there yeah mom friend that we all need yeah oh sweet yeah i hate planes moral of the story moral of the story you'll never watch me watch snakes on a plane never watch that movie have you seen that movie no (laughs) anything with crashing plane no absolutely not not happening not doing it i'm set life better without those in my life thank you yeah i'm just freaking glad his plane crashed in the swamp yeah next to a residential good for him he wanted it to be in the gulf of mexico because he was like yeah also you're like polluting the ocean like come on dude come on dude my god but whatever that's fine he wasn't thinking about that that's okay he had a lot of other things on his mind you know what he honestly he really did He was trying to figure out, because apparently he also had, like, maps of national parks on him. Oh, really? So he's trying to figure out what, which national park to go visit. Honestly, I support that. I support the national park thing. Me too. Gotta always go there. Got to get the chance, go. Yeah. Support the nature. <laughs> okay, well, you guys can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as Facebook. Um, Twitter, we're BF Guide MM. Instagram, we are BF Guide to Money Murder. Facebook, we're just the Best Friends Guide to Money and Murder. And then what's our YouTube channel, Claire? Is it just the Best Friends Guide to Money and Murder? Great. Uh, you can email us uh, at uh, BF Guide to Money and Murder at gmail.com. We'll have a website maybe when this comes out with all the links to all of our things. Yeah. You can email us again if you have any suggestions. Uh, we're still in the, I call it the cringy stages of making a podcast uh, where we're trying to figure out just what our flow is. But I think I can speak for Claire when we're really excited to see where this goes. And anything else you want to say, pal? We're really excited and hopefully there'll be someone besides our partners and friends that listen to it one person that's okay i'm saying fine with that even if it's just one person come be our bff i'm ready for more friends yeah we'll have a lot of friends (laughs) if you need a friend we're here we have soft blankets we have soft blankets we laugh at anything uncomfortable and we have dark humor so any of that sounds good to you uh, join us next time yeah we're still um, trying to f- figure it all out but so let us know your thoughts mm-hmm. and we will uh, see you later pals be good be good be good and wear a fucking mask wear a fucking mask <laughs> bye